Okay, an unusual passage today, please. Numbers chapter 35, Numbers 35. The relevant text today, if it goes like I think it might, Numbers 35, starting around verse 20, following and following. Then Romans 8, 34, maybe a little context there. And I'll also be hitting this. You don't have to turn to all these places, but I do wish you'd turn to Numbers 35. Exodus, if you don't have a Bible, there's a couple down here. Exodus, some of you have memorized the Bible, so we don't need to. 17, 8 through 16. And Hebrews, I'm going to put in toto. That means the whole thing. Hebrews was written in the genre of a sermon. So was Galatians. Hebrews is a sermon in a letter. And that'll help us to understand the book of Hebrews in total, in its totality. Romans 8.34 opens the door to a total exposition of Hebrews. I'm not going to do all that this morning. Well, maybe I will, but then you'll miss your picnic. But it's going to get rained out anyway, so who cares? The... Salvation Army Food Drive, I believe, is still on since it's still the month of May. And so let's finish strong on that. We started strong. Let's finish stronger. Salvation Army Food Drive. Also, not in the bulletin this time, the Phil Henry Power Gospel Night will be held this coming Thursday at 7 o'clock. And all are welcome. There's going to be several messages brought forward. I call Phil lately Reverend networker because he's he's made some strong connections with churches and people speaking the same word that we're speaking at least having the same insight as to the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and he has spoken to many of them recently most recently Peter Hyatt who has a church out in Denver and they're planning a conference which will feature Julie Ferwerda and others He's also been in contact with her, with Mars, and I may be stealing Mars's little title called Adversity University pretty soon because of Romans 8.36. And again, Peter Hyatt is the one who interviewed Ilaria Ramelli in a very excellent interview that you can catch on YouTube. It's worth watching. Ilaria Ramelli interviewed by Peter Hyatt, H-I-E-T-T. I already have great affinity with him because he taught the book of Revelation and the insights that he got from that got him excommunicated from his church. So I already like the guy. And I think Phil may be bringing a little bit of insight about Peter Hyatt. And so I was approached twice this weekend by people who say, we really appreciate how you mentored Phil and the messages. They get all his messages. And I said, I didn't do anything. God calls each person, and it's each person speaks and ministers and serves under, and that includes all of you, under their own particular gift that God pours out at his own sovereign freedom. And he will show you what it is and how to function in it. And some of you have been functioning in it years and don't even know it it's where the where you find as the world says today you find your bliss is often how you function in your gift so numbers chapter 35 we're going to talk a little bit about 
sanctuary cities. Because that's exactly what Numbers 35, 20 to 32 is all about. They're also known as cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. And how this applies to Romans 1, 2, the gospel of God about his son. Romans 16, 25 and 26, which God by his e- the eternal God's command has opened up the Old Testament scriptures, taken the veil off them to show that they are all about his son in whom he intends to sum up all things. Also, there's a lady, I didn't want to forget this, monthly ladies prayer time after service today, and I'm going to ask specifically, ladies, that you would pray for me. I'm being very selfish. But pray for me in accordance with Ephesians 6.18 to 20 that I may make known the gospel of the mystery as I ought, but also in connection with Romans 16, 25, and 26, and 27, that God will be glorified in the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of this mystery, God's intent to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. That's going to be my final chapter in the gift that God has given to me. So I pray that you will pray for me and that all of you will in that connection. After God granted the great military victory of Israel over Amalek in Exodus, I want you to see a very important word today. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 13, records Amalek, who attacked the people of Israel in the land or on their way to the land. Yahweh, the Lord, said to Moses after he granted victory. As you know, Moses' hands were held up by her and Aaron. And as long as his hands were held up by them, the Lord prevailed. Israel prevailed over Amalek. Freedom through military victory pertained then. It still does now, but there's a war going on that's far more significant and the enemies far more powerful and the victor far more glorious. And so I didn't intend this, but I think the Lord intended it and therefore it has all the more infinite, infinite meaning to it. Again, in Exodus chapter seventeen fourteen, after that victory, Yahweh the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial. And that, that kind of struck me. Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Joshua, of course, is the lesser Yehoshua, Yahweh saves, the greater Yehoshua, Jesus, Hebrews 4 the savior of all mankind and the redeemer of all creation. In the ears of Joshua rehearses for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17:14. Now to us Amalek is a metaphor for the Adamic ontology for the sin-controlled old man. It is that which God will utterly put out of remembrance. For look, he says, I'm making all things new. Romans, make that revelation, 21.5. And look, he says, I'm making a new heaven and a new earth, and the past things will not be remembered, nor will they ever come to mind. Isaiah 65.17. And still again, 
2 Corinthians 5.17. If any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. That means, as Ephesians 2.10 says, they are created in Christ Jesus as God's masterpiece. Look, old things have passed away. Look, new things have come. In Exodus 17.16, however, Yahweh said, Quote, because the hand of Amalek was raised against the throne of Yahweh. And that's how it should be translated there. Because the hand of Amalek was raised against the throne of Yahweh, which is a throne of grace, of course. The hand of Amalek represents all that is competing with the lordship of Jesus Christ. All that competes with the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth and mercy. And all authority will be put down. All competing authority will be put under his feet, as we know, and is being put under his feet. And that's represented by what Jesus says, what Yahweh says to Moses. The Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. As James 4, 6 says, God makes war against the high and mighty. And we know that word. It's hyperiphania or hyperiphanos. Those who compare themselves with others and come up superior. Whether it's comparing in terms of looks or in terms of wealth or in terms of success or in terms of ability or strength or race or ethnic origin and coming up superior. God is at war against the high and mighty, as it says. God has invaded this evil age with its idolatrous self-assertions. And the weapons of our warfare are not fragile like the flesh, but mighty through God to the pulling down of every high thing that exalts itself or asserts itself against the knowledge of God. God makes war against all that is ranged against his grace and his mercy. That includes the doctrine of hell, incidentally. He resists the proud, the conceited, the haughty, the inordinately ambitious, those who compare themselves with others and come up superior. I know it's hard to say this into a generation who wants to have likes and followers and look at me, look at me, look at us, look at us, but mostly look at me every day in your face. So turn it off for an hour or two and reflect because only reflection on the word of God will purify your thoughts and maybe even the blood of Christ will purify your conscience from stupidity and dead works in order to serve the living God instead of yourself in the arrogance of the Adamic ontology. That's pastoral. Do I apologize for it? Hell no. Now, therefore, Yahweh wars against Amalek. The banner that flies over the heads of Israel, the Israel of God, is called Yahweh Nisi. We've already looked at Yahweh Yira, God is for us and provides. This is Yahweh Nisi, which means the banner over us, the flag that we carry into battle against Amalek. But not only is Yahweh Nisi written on it, the banner is not only called Yahweh Nisi, But interestingly now, and this is where I want to make a turn, and I'm going to make a couple turns in this message that express an insight that's extraordinary, that goes beyond the ordinary commentary 
and exposition of these passages. The, the banner that flies over the heads of the Israel of God in battle, the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nissi, flag or standard. But intriguingly, very intriguingly, and I always like to go to the Septuagint translation called the LXX, 70 translators translated the Hebrew into the Greek for the Jewish believers, Greek speaking in Alexandria of Egypt. And thank God we have that translation today because I, I believe it's even better than that, which is called the Masoretic text, which has been corrupted. So I always like to go to the Septuagint. Listen to what the Septuagint translation says on Exodus seventeen fifteen. It says, and Moses built an altar to the Lord and called the name of it, my Lord is a refuge. My Lord is a refuge or the Lord, my refuge. I'm inclined to think that both Yahweh Nissi or the Lord, our banner and the Lord, our refuge are intended in this meaning. The banner, in other words, a flag attached to a staff used by a monarch or a military commander and carried into battle was usually emblazoned with some image or title or message. Here, the banner carried against Amalek, which is still being carried against the Adamic ontology, against sin and death and the principalities and powers that hold sway in this evil age. The banner is emblazoned with the Lord, my refuge. The Septuagint uses the word kurios. Now, I'm only going to do this today because I think it's very important. Kurios, it's K-U-R-I-O-S. That's the Greek word for Lord. Kurios, mu, M-O-U, my. Kurios, mu, M-O-U. The Lord, my. And then this word right here, and I'm going to accentuate this word. Kata, K-A-T-A, the Lord, my refuge. And the word is found here, and we're going to see it in another passage too. The Lord, my refuge. Kata, fuge. Looks like that. The Greek is very interesting. Again, kata. K-A-T-A-P-H-U-G-E. Katafuge. That means refuge. And that word is used as we're going to see right presently. Numbers 35, 27, and 28. And it speaks of sanctuary. In fact, it speaks of sanctuary cities in Numbers 35, 11 that were appointed for persons to go who accidentally caused the death of another person. Without malice, without forethought, they accidentally caused the death of another person. Instead of being prosecuted and under several eyewitnesses, executed, they were allowed to flee or find refuge in a city, a sanctuary city, marked for the purpose of these people specifically. They could go there and they could find refuge and be free from any avengers that might be after them, free from prosecution, free from accusation, free from condemnation. But they could only stay in that city of refuge until the high priest in office at that time died. 
at which time they had to return to the land of their possession or the land that they possessed in the promised land. Only until the high priest, alive at the time, died. So woe to the person who has to flee there and the high priest dies five minutes later. But there's something to this that we have not seen before and I have not seen before. Kata fuge. Again, Numbers 35, 27 and 28 uses that same word that Exodus 17, 15 in the Septuagint uses for sanctuary cities. Any person who accidentally caused the death of another person was to flee for refuge to one of these cities. And they were to stay in that city and have refuge as long as the current high priest was alive. Numbers 35.25 says literally, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. That's where we get our word Christ, incidentally, the word creo. He was anointed with the holy oil. Already it's beginning to pop in the Old Testament. Something not seen until God commanded it to be seen is that his son is being referenced here as the high priest anointed with oil. But there's something unique about him. There's two things unique about him, as we will see. So here's the instructions of the sanctuary cities of Israel. Numbers 35, and I'm going to read from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I don't have time to exegete all this. Someday I may. But I'm also adding within some bracketed commentary and some clarifications or some emphases. Numbers 35:20 through 32. Listen carefully to this, and I recommend that you read this on your own sometime and let the insights pop for you. The Lord will do it for you. Verse 20, likewise, if anyone in hatred pushes a person or throws an object at him with malicious intent and he dies, or if in hostility he strikes him with his hand and he dies, the one who struck him must be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood is to kill the murderer when he finds him. Verse 22, but if anyone suddenly pushes a person without hostility, or throws any object at him without malicious intent, or drops a stone without looking that could kill a person, and he dies. But he was not his enemy and wasn't trying to harm him. The assembly is to judge between the slayer and the avenger of blood, according to these ordinances. The assembly is to protect, verse 25, is to protect the one who kills someone from the hand of the avenger of blood. Then the assembly will return him to the city of refuge he fled to. The city of refuge he fled to. Again, the, the, this is so important. The Greek text is more important than you can imagine. And the, for the Greek, for the minister of the New Testament, the Greek text is indispensable and essential. Without it, I guarantee, I guarantee, whenever, I don't care what translation you have, I guarantee you'll be misled and that you will misread. The Greek text is absolutely essential. And that goes for the Septuagint of the Old Testament. Fled for refuge here is a verb that's used. And it's like this, but it's kata, P-H-E-U-G-O, kata, Fugo it means we actually kind of get our word fugitive from this. Kata fugo means to flee for refuge. So here's the noun. 
Kata fuge, here's the verb, kata fugo, to flee for refuge uh, to a particular place. And so again, the assembly will return him to the city of refuge he fled to, kata fugo. And he must live there until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil dies. And that's eos an apothane ho hieros ho megas on ekrisan oton. The priest, the high priest who is anointed with oil. If the one who kills someone ever goes outside the border of the city of refuge, he fled. Again, the word kata fugo is used. Important that you recall these things now. Again, it says, if the one who kills someone ever goes outside the border of the city of refuge, he fled to. And the avenger of blood, in verse 27, finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, that sanctuary city, Kata fuge, the, see this word pops up everywhere here, and kills him, the avenger will not be guilty of bloodshed. So you kind of get the idea, don't leave town. For the one who killed a person was supposed to live in his city of refuge, Kata fuge, again, until the death of the high priest, until the death of the high priest. Only, and I emphasize this, I emphasize this emphatically, only after the death of the high priest. Kind of stepping on Brian Messick's territory when he taught a series on this, but only the death of the high priest. That's why I sent him off to teach the kids so he wouldn't hear this. May the one who has killed a person Return to the land he possesses. Notice it. He returns to the land he possesses. Hopefully, like Jesus, who was sent down to Egypt, an angel comes to Joseph and says, you can go back now. Everyone who sought his life are dead. Herod and his hit squad, everyone who wanted him to die is dead. And so as the scripture says, up out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus Christ being revealed in the very actions of the Exodus generation. Then it goes on to say, these instructions will be a statutory ordinance. The Hebrew is mishpat. For you throughout your generations, wherever you live, if anyone kills a person, the murderer is to be put to death based on the word of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death based on the testimony of one witness. You are not to accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of killing someone. He must be put to death. Neither should you accept ransom for the person who flees to his city of refuge. Here, I'm emphasizing this phrase, allowing him to return and live in the land before the death of the high priest. Over and over again, kata fuge, kata fugo, Death of the high priest, death of the high priest, death of the high priest who was anointed with oil. The Christos, who is the Hierus, the Christ that is the priest, is ultimately coming up here. Now, by an interconnectedness of Romans 34 that we'll get to pretty soon, and by an interconnectedness or intertextual relationship, we call it, in bibliology, with a sermon called the Letter to the Hebrews. It's actually a sermon. Read it that way and you'll be enlightened. 
the letter of Hebrews and Romans 8.34 has a deep relationship with Numbers 35 and the law of the cities of refuge, or we could call it the instructions regarding sanctuary cities. For the scripture says, we have a high priest who lives forever. Having died and having arisen from the dead and who is at God's right hand in the very holiest place of all, making intercession for us all. That doesn't mean he's praying for us only. It means he's standing in the presence of God as the righteous one for us, as our reconciliation of God and mankind, all mankind. So his intercession is not just for the church. It's for all of humanity who will be made alive in him, who has made alive. And he appears there as our propitiation, says 1 John 2, 1. Our expiation, the proof of expiation as he retains the star scars that he received in receiving the wages of our sin. He stands before at the right hand of the Father and before him also. He appears before him, according to Hebrews 9.24, in intercession just by being, not necessarily by praying. Just by being there, he is the proof of the reconciliation of God with all humankind He is the proof of expiation that our sins were taken away in Hebrews 9.26. As the lamb who took away the sin of the world, he is the proof of our eternal redemption. He is the proof that he is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our wisdom and all the other things that are said about him for us. Quoting Psalm 110.4. And if you take the Psalms that Hebrews speaks about, Hebrews is an exegesis of Psalm 8, 5 through 7, Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 110, 4, and Psalm 46 through 8. If you take the few Psalms, you can get the whole gist of Hebrews as it is an exegesis of those Psalms. In Psalm 110, 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 5, 6. But listen carefully to this. A twofold reality, one reality, but twofold, pertains here. Those who have fled for refuge to Jesus have a high priest who both died, the high priest died, and was made alive to die no more. So if the high priest dies, you're allowed to go back to the land that you possess, which for us is to experience the kingdom of God even now. But while the high priest is alive, you still have the refuge. We have both the refuge because our high priest is living, ever living to make intercession for us. And we have the privilege of returning back and forth to the land that we possess, which is for us to experience the kingdom of God even now because he died. And so it not only is a comparison here between Jesus who lives forever And the high priest who dies and passes on the mantle to the next high priest, we have a comparison here of the incomparable Christ who both died and lives forever. So we are free to move without and within the sanctuary city. We have the land of our possession even now. We have the land of our possession to live in, to experience the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit even now. 
even though when he comes, it'll be completely. And we also have fled for refuge, kata fugo, Hebrews 6.18, to Jesus, who lives forever. So then, we have the privilege. Now listen, this goes back to divine promity. Promity. Those who have fled for refuge to Jesus have a high priest who both died and who was made alive to die no more. And this is very important. Romans 6, 9 to 10 comes in here, oddly enough, where it says Christ, the one who died in verse 7 and in Hebrew and also in Romans eight thirty three, the one who died, Christ, having been raised up from the dead, no longer dies, no longer dies. We have a a priest that did die, but being raised up no longer dies. This is Romans 8.34. God gave his son, did not spare his son, but freely gave him over on behalf of us all so that we might also freely receive all things in him because he's the heir of all things. But he's also raised and ever living to make intercession for us. Just watch how this, follow this out. The Holy Spirit will teach you the most important things here. Much more than I can. Infinitely more than I can. Romans 6, 9, and 10 again. Christ, having been raised up from the dead, no longer dies. Death has no power over him. In that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. He lives to God. He lives next to, -to face-to-face with God. Of course, he is God, but he's also the mediator between God and man. You know what? Jesus lives to God for you. So you can brag all day with your bragamony and tell how you live to God, but I'll tell you this. This is my testimony. Jesus Christ lives to God for me. So I must live perfectly to God as I should. We also are called to live to the one who God raised from the dead, whom God raised from the dead. So Jesus lives to God as our advocate, parakletos, our intercessor. He lives to God for us. Divine Prometheus is still in view. Consequently, we have the double privilege of being free from the avenger, As long as Jesus lives as our great high priest, and that's forever. So that's you're getting into the questions. Who will lay a charge against God's elect? Who will condemn? Who will do this and thus and such? The answer is obviously nobody. Nobody. Now, this is just an analogy from the mishpat of Jurisprudence under Moses' law. We have the privilege also of living in the land that we possess. That is, we have the privilege of experiencing the kingdom of God even now because our priest, whoever lives and who exercises his mediation for us in the power of an endless life, has also died. You can never consider the death of Christ without referring forward to his resurrection. But neither can you ever consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ without referring backward to his death. 
They are all one event. In the one event called the Christ event, God, through Jesus Christ, reconciled the world to himself. The sins of the world were expiated or put away, and all of humanity was justified in the action of Christ's resurrection and death. His expiation required his death and his resurrection. Our justification required his death and resurrection. And we died with him, and so we're justified with him. And we were raised with him, and therefore we are justified with him, with his life, and experience his life. Now, therefore, he is the one unique high priest who died and who has been resurrected by God to live forever. He was crucified in weakness, said Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, but now he ever lives by the power of God. So it's not just a contrast as commentators do and as I've done in the past. It's not just a contrast between the priests, plural, of the old order who die and Jesus, the high priest who never dies. That's not the full comparison here or contrast. What is the contrast is between the priests of the old order who died and Jesus, the great high priest who died, but who also lives forever, death having no power over him. And he makes everlasting intercession for us. That means he is interceding for us while we endure the clashing of the ages While we, like sheep, are led to the slaughter all day long, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from that love of God in Christ Jesus. So consequently, we have both privileges, freedom from accusation and condemnation. Who shall lay a charge to God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Who is going to accuse God who justifies who's going to condemn Christ the one who died yea rather says the old King James yea rather even beyond that is raised from the dead and at God's right hand making intercession for us you see you can read that verse and be semi-impressed or you can read it in the context I'm giving you today and be blown out of your chair if you understand these things God has given us all that we need for life and true piety by his own divine power, says 2 Peter 1, 3. So we have the freedom to live in the land of our possession even now in this agona, in this arena of contention, in adversity university. Welcome. You can check out any time you want, but you ain't going to leave until God's finished. After you've suffered a while, then he'll perfect and establish you. You can check out. You can become a recluse. You can become an escapee from the agona, but you'll just escape into another agona. Because when you try to escape from the world, you take you with you. Now, You, in Adamic ontology, is your own worst enemy. I have in me a desire to be reclusive, but God has told me, you can't be one. So I said, okay, I'll write it out then until I'm 
dead physically, I guess. So we can experience his kingdom as the land we possess even now, though only when Christ who is our life, Christ who is our life, Christ who is our life, and your life will have meaning and purpose and definition only to the degree that you realize that your life is Christ. Until you conform to that reality, until you're reconciled to the reality that you're reconciled to God in him. Attentiveness isn't directed in this direction, however, anymore. Which is a heartbreak to the prophet, to the pastor, to the teacher. But signs of hope are everywhere. Hebrews six seventeen to 20. You can turn there if you want, because I'm reading from the HCSB with a little bit of modification. Holman Christian Standard Bible. I find it to be... Excellent among other translations, but not perfect. I find no English translation perfect. Hebrews six seventeen to 20. But listen carefully to this. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose. Remember the word purpose. Romans eight twenty eight, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even more clearly to the, heir, to the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise, incidentally? The promise is unconditionally made to Abraham and to his seed. But the promise is also universal because his seed is Christ. And in Christ, all will be made alive, receiving the Holy Spirit. So the heirs of his promise is everybody, everybody, everybody in all time. He wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of his promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that now through two unchangeable things, that is the promise and the oath, which undergirds the promise, the very divine essence of goodness itself. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, I'm not a man that I can lie. I'm not a politician. So when my lips are moving, I'm not lying. It's God's grace that this country is where it is right now. Because for the past 50 years, it's been, well, how many clowns can fit in a Volkswagen? How many clowns can fit in Congress? How many clowns can fit in government? God sovereignly controls history or we'd be done. And the only thing that's going to bring this country up from its decline, which is severely in decline right now, severely because of the internal lives of people, not the external circumstances or the politicians. The, take care of your own internal condition and quit complaining and bitching and moaning about the government. We're supposed to pray for all men, including all human beings that are in government, that we might live a peaceable life and have the freedom to evangelize with this glorious gospel. So it's time to shut up horizontally and open your mouth fluently vertically at this time in history. Complaining and murmuring is the very essence of a warped and distorted generation that is at fault for bringing history down into a decline. Politicians don't do that. Screwed up interiors of people's minds and souls collectively do that. 
I'm talking into a generation in which the most irrational hatred, irrational damning hatred has arisen in the hearts of people who don't even know why they hate. And this is the generation we're supposed to say, love one another as Christ loved us and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's got to be some conversions going on, I think. Politics has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Capitalism and socialism are nothing. Neither one is to be taken seriously. What's to be taken seriously is a who, and his name is Jesus Christ. I do not take Christianity seriously. I do not take the Roman Catholic Church seriously. I do not take the Protestant Reformation seriously. I do not take Protestant churches seriously. I don't take Pentecostal churches seriously. Charismatic churches seriously. Tetelestai Church seriously. I take Jesus Christ seriously. And he's very serious about each and every one of us, each and every one of us with a love that goes beyond anything you could think or imagine or like or follow. Hebrews six seventeen to 20. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly the heirs of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that two unchangeable things by through two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge, catafugo. He's reaching back to numbers 35 here to reveal God's son in the word. There's our sanctuary city. And it's not. You call a sanctuary city San Francisco or some city in Florida or some state. But here we have no continuing city. Our sanctuary city is forever. It's a new Jerusalem. And a high priest lives there who always lives there, who already died. So that new Jerusalem becomes the headquarters, but we're free to go anywhere else. And to live in our own land of possession. Again, verse 18, that through unchangeable things, through two unchangeable things at which it was impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, same word deployed in Numbers 35, 25 and 35, 26, might have strong encouragement, might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. Verse 19, we have this hope, we have this hope, we have this confident expectation, this wonderful anticipation, like a sure and firm anchor of the soul that enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. The curtain here isn't an iron curtain, a bamboo curtain. It's the curtain of the flesh of the Messiah. It is the curtain of death, which he endured, and he lives now beyond that curtain, beyond that death, where when you die, you go immediately into his presence without stopping or collecting $200. And everybody's got to get out of hell card free. You can keep your hell doctrine and go to hell with it and find out you'll be nowhere. Catch that one. That's brilliant. Now, we have fled... For refuge. Now look at verse. Let me finish this. I get excited. I'm sorry. We have this hope like a sure and firm anchor of the soul that enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Listen, verse 20. Jesus has entered there. 
Jesus has entered there. On our behalf as a forerunner. In Christ all will be made alive. So he enters into that life as a forerunner. Which means it guarantees everybody else going there. In Christ all will be made alive. Because he has become a high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Back to Hebrews 5.6. Which is a quote of Psalm 110.4. Well we fled for refuge. We have fled for refuge. I don't remember fleeing for refuge. God awoke you to faith, did he not? That Jesus is the Christ. God awoke you. In fact, he might have even recently made you woke to the knowledge that Jesus Christ has universally saving significance. And so you can look back and say, well, I fled for refuge to him. People are fleeing for refuge to a socialism they don't even define or even know about. You go to a college campus, what's good, socialism or capitalism? Socialism. What is it? Crickets. Silence. Cicadas. Locusts. Uh, I don't know, but he might pay my loans. (laughs) Okay, I'm so, I, I would so value your education. I'd rather learn how to fix, solder a pipe than go to learn liberal arts today. But anyways, at least you can do something then. Oh, what's a pipe? Now, oh, that's my pipe. It's over there with my other, you know, with my bong. When I worked at, when I was at college, Bible college, I worked at the Holiday Inn, and there was a guy that tried to mock my faith and tried to get me to get react, and he says, my buddies and I smoke marijuana every day. I bet you can't because your faith and all that. And I said, I've smoked more dope in my life at the University of Vermont than you will for the rest of your life, and one of the reasons I quit it is because it turns people into a passive, uncaring, stupid, indifferent, effeminate moron. And he goes, well, we don't do it much. (laughs) Now, I thank God that's done. That's a done, that's the old man. He's gone. He's dead. He's buried. I I don't know him anymore at all. But you look at a minister and you say, oh, he's a minister. You have no idea. You have no conception where I've been, what I've done, so don't judge me as being a good guy. (laughs) How do you like that one? (laughs) Oh, he's a minister. Did I say shit? Oh, you know. (laughs) Right. Yeah, hell yeah, you did. I heard you say it recently. No. Now. I'm following Emery's lead. His messages aren't preaching. They are phenomena. The phenomena. Paul was a phenomena before the Galatians. He was in such bad shape physically and because of illness and disease that he was a depiction of Christ crucified. So if a preacher does something that shocks like Isaiah did, shocks like Jeremiah did, shocks like Ezekiel did, shocks like many prophets did, if in fact all of them from one time to the next. 
then you'll take it and like it. That's what you remember that, of course, from the Maltese Falcon. I'm giving you a little comic relief here because I got to finish. And it takes a while for these things to settle in. Humphrey Bogart slaps Peter Laurie. You slapped me, he said. And, of course, Philip Marlowe, the detective, says, when you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. All right. That should be a preacher's motto. Hey, don't be offended if I just slapped you. They're going to kill me. That's the intention. Any preacher that makes this gospel clear, there's the intent to kill that preacher. Whether they're successful or not, that's another thing. I almost, some days, I almost wake up in the morning and think he's going to let me live a long life and keep preaching this. You can pray that if you want. So we have fled for refuge to him who, according to Hebrews 7.16, has an indestructible life. Not this life made immortal, which people are striving to do through science. And therefore we are free from prosecution from the enemy, from Satana. We're free from accusation and condemnation in Hebrews 6.18 to 20. Our Hebrew our high priest has gone into the region behind the veil of death. Hebrews 10:20, the veil was his flesh that was torn in death, where there is only in that region only death conquering life. He has gone there not only for himself but as our forerunner, the forerunner for all humanity who are made alive in him. To be made alive in him in resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. With the same resurrection life. For he was raised up by the glory of the father. And the glory of the father is the Holy Spirit. And the spirit that's holy is the spirit of Christ. And we will have the same body of glory as his in Philippians 3, 20. In Hebrews 7.25 is therefore perfectly compatible. I'm winding it down. We're almost done. Perfectly compatible with Romans 8.34. Hebrews 7.25. Listen carefully. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for the sins of the people. He did this once and for all. That is for all, all people, all people, all times. Once for all. When he offered himself. And how about this in Hebrews 9.13? For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's ritual sanctification, how much more will the blood of the Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. The conscience of the interior mind and the heart of man has to be cleansed to serve the living God or there is no renewal or deliverance for this nation. God will have a day when he memorializes heroes 
that are not memorialized on Memorial Day. That's some of you. If not all of you, you say, well, I'm not ready for that. God doesn't care. Again, Hebrews 9.24, for the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true holy of holies, but into the heaven itself that he might now appear in the presence of God for us, for us, promiety. He did not do this to offer himself many times. As the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, says verse 26. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for people to die once and after this, the judgment, meaning the judgment of justification and life. So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, many means all, will appear a second time, not to bear sin for all, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him, and that's all, whether they know it or not. Even creation that isn't aware of its waiting is waiting. So even the unbeliever is waiting for something, but they don't know what, and it's their Savior from above who fulfills and satisfies the deepest of every human need, because he made human beings. So this is how Romans 8.34 opens the door to the letter to the Hebrews in which the active mediation of Jesus as great high priest is magnificently featured and fanned out along with his sacrificial death. Even though Hebrews has the theme of a priest that lives forever, Hebrews can't leave alone the theme of his death. For he, by the grace of God, tasted death for every person that he might bring many children into glory. Many means all. And so, Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for every human being without exception in order to bring every human being without exception to glory. Speaking of Romans 8.34, let's close by considering that verse in context with 8.33. Now we're back to Romans 8. We're almost, we're winding down. We're almost done with Romans, at least our treatment of it. You'll never be done with Romans. But you know what? For Hebrews, the reason Hebrews isn't understood today is because you need Romans to interpret Hebrews. You need Romans to interpret Hebrews. You need Romans or you don't get Hebrews. Verse 20, 33 of Romans 8. Who will bring an effective charge against God's elect? God, the one who justifies? Of course not. Who is the one who will condemn? Speaking of that avenger. Christ, the one who died? And beyond that, who was raised up? And it says in Romans 4.25, raised up. For our justification. So God who justifies. Justifies Christ who died. Christ who died was justified by the God who justifies. And since all are in Christ. All are justified when God justified Jesus through his faithfulness. So nobody gets justified by their personal faith. Everybody gets justified by the faithfulness. Personal faithfulness of one Jesus Christ. I got more to say on that. I'm not done with that theme. Not, not today, but in the near future. Who will condemn? 
Christ, the one who died and beyond that was raised up and who is at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf, just like the Spirit advocates for us in this so-called meantime in Adversity University. We're there. We're enrolled. We're there. We're matriculating classes. We're taking all kinds of activities in Adversity University. and Everybody gets theirs. And God has appointed a certain amount of adversity to every single person. And it's all good. He's graced us with this privilege. So let's skip to the end and we'll put on the squeeze and close. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I've been persuaded. This means that Paul has come to a thing called cognitive invincibility. You can't shake him on this because he's been persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so have I in Romans 14, 14, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, or things about to be, nor powers above, nor powers below, nor any other created thing will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I close with this question. Why can't any of these things separate us from the love of God in Christ? And they're just a representative catalog. Because our current high priest, the one who died, Romans 6, 7, Romans 8.33, lives forever, always appearing to God as our expiation, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, our peace, our reconciliation. These are the truths that we must lay hold of and be attentive to as we attend Adversity University. Romans 8.26, 2 Corinthians 4.7-11, which is necessary in the clashing of the ages. Until the age of Messiah fully prevails, which it will, and Yahweh fully vanquishes Amalek, everything vying for, against grace and mercy as the ruling power in Jesus Christ. This church, then, this church, this church we called Tetelestai before I even understood the meaning of the word completely, and still don't. This church is not our sanctuary. It is not our sanctuary. But Jesus is our sanctuary. But we come to church to be reminded of that, to be reminded of him. So an even broader principle, all of this shows that the mystery kept silent for epochs in the past, says Romans 16.25, kept silent within the writings of the prophets. And the prophets wrote not only the prophets, but Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and that great military book, Numbers. Prophets wrote Isaiah. Two Isaiahs, three Isaiahs, Proto, Deutero, Trito, Isaiah. Prophets wrote Hosea. Prophets wrote Jeremiah. Prophets wrote the Psalms. David was in the office of a prophet. Prophets wrote Daniel. Daniel was called a prophet by Jesus, Matthew twenty four fifteen. So all the Old Testament were written by prophets. In the writings of the prophets, including Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, as well as Psalms, so f- prominently featured in Hebrews, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Daniel, Nahum, Haggai, Obadiah, 
Jonah, Amos, you name them, have now popped. They've become pop-up books. The gospel about God's son has now become apocalyptically revealed by his order and decree. The father made a command, an eternal God made a command. Now let the Old Testament reveal my son. But you're going to have to turn, the heart has to turn to the Lord before Christ is seen in the reading of the Old Testament. So the Lord turns the heart to Christ and you begin to see when Jesus took the veil off the minds of his disciples that they might understand the scriptures. He did it intense intensively in order to show them that the scriptures were all about him all about him. That's the Old Testament. And so you have to take things like war against Amalek and understand that it's only typifying a war against all authority in the Adamic ontology, all principalities and powers, which I'm going to teach nearly and very soon, are also reconciled to God. That's called fallen angels even. Reconciled. Reconciled. And I'll prove it again. All these things, according to the mystery of God's will, to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. That's what they teach. The whole Old Testament teaches God's intention, his mystery of his will, to sum up everything savingly, salvifically in Jesus Christ. I'm also going to ask this question and answer it in the near future. Could God have done it another way but but by the cross? The answer is yes, but he could never have done it fully and infinitely like he did it in the cross of Christ with a, an extraordinary extra beyond salvation, which is a participation in the divine nature. So all the writings of the prophets, including the statutory ordinance mishpat of the sanctuary cities in Romans third in numbers 35 and the victor in the Amalek war speak of God's son who is the heir of all things. God didn't spare his son and he didn't spare his son who is the heir of all things so that you could inherit all things with him. Amen. Happy. I don't want to say happy Memorial day. It's not supposed to be happy. It's supposed to be pensive, reflective, but then after you've pensively reflected, have a good time.